0: Well, good morning again everybody. Great to be with you this morning. For those of you whose uh, whose lives revolve around the academic calendar, happy spring break to you. For those of you whose lives don't revolve around the academic calendar, um, I hope you have a nice afternoon today, you know. it's it's about all you get, yeah. Instead of a week of doing nothing, you can have a few hours of doing nothing, how about that? But great to have you here. My name is Thomas, lead pastor here at West Bowl. So glad to have you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for taking the time out on a beautiful spring Spring, 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 spring day. Praise God. And I know, I know, it could snow four feet tomorrow. I know this. For some reason, you people love telling me this. But it's not going to snow four feet tomorrow, okay? So uh, let's enjoy this as long as we can. Hey, speaking of the great weather, Easter is quickly approaching. And uh, in addition to the cute outfits that come along with that and all the family brunches, and all the Easter egg hunts. What we're really hoping will take center stage in a few weekends is is the Christian message, right? The message of eternal life. The message of Christ's supremacy over all things. And so I really want to challenge you over the next few weeks to be inviting as many people as you can to our Easter services. I think it's going to be an amazing day. We're going to present the gospel in a powerful way. Worship is going to be incredible. I think it's just going to be a great day for this church, this community. So, uh, actually, if you would, right now, take out your cell phone. Uh, if you've got one, I know we told you on the announcement thing to take that, put those away. But take that out for me. I want you for the next minute or two to scroll through your contact list. Find someone that you haven't talked to in, in a while, someone that kind of lives in the area, and I want you to text them a simple message. You, me, Easter, West Bowls. Done. All right? So I'll give you a few minutes now to be on your phone or your pad or whatever, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you put those away here in just a few minutes. But I'd love for you to be inviting some folks. Think about who you might a classmate, a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, maybe even a family member. Excited for that. Hey, we're currently in a series entitled The Story, and I apologize if you're like Nathan and your heart rate goes up every time you watch our little promo videos, uh, but I'm so excited about what God has been showing us through this. What we're doing is we're utilizing a resource called The Story, and what it does is it takes a lot of excerpts from the Bible, and it puts them together in more of a novel-like read so it's easier to see how all the stories connect together but more importantly we're hoping that you will see how God is in all the stories and how God makes sense of all the stories but let's go one further how God is actually in your story as well it's not just true of stories of old although when you learn that he was in every single one of them I hope that you will learn he's in every single one still today He's making sense of them. He's giving meaning to him. So we're going through the story. Today I asked you to do a lot of reading, chapters 11 and 12. We're having to catch up a little bit. We're doing the entire life of David today. I'm excited uh, to share with you some thoughts from that man's life and from those chapters. Let me pray over our time together, our time in the word. Father, we ask that you will speak to us now. We believe that you are alive and well, that you are not distant or aloof or dead. We believe you are alive. We believe that you are speaking now as you did in days old we believe that you are communicating to us as you did to the kings and the prophets and the forefathers god would you speak to us now would you open our hearts and our minds would you say just one word to us that might change us forever open our hearts and our minds to your message to your word this morning in jesus name we pray amen a little boy and his family lived out in a rural part of west texas although that's probably redundant to say right all of west texas Uh, Is rural, But this family didn't have any facilities in the house, so they had to use an outhouse for the bathroom. Well, the little boy hated the outhouse because from his room, he could smell the stench, especially in the hot Texas summer months. Now, the outhouse sat on the bank of a small stream, and day after day, the boy fantasized about pushing that outhouse into the stream. Well, one afternoon, after a heavy rain, the stream was running at an all-time high, as was the boy's courage. So he got an old two by four, used it as a giant crowbar, and he pushed with all of his might until the outhouse toppled backwards into the stream. Well, it didn't take long for news of the outhouse to reach the father of the house. That night, the dad called the son over, and he just said a few simple words, son, tonight we're going to the woodshed, which the boy meant, or knew meant, tonight you're getting a whooping. So the boy weighed his options quickly and decided the only way out of this mess was to come clean. Dad, I was the one who pushed the outhouse into the stream. It was me, I confess. But, Dad, I read last week that George Washington, he chopped down a cherry tree, and he didn't get in trouble because he confessed to it and told the truth. The dad turned and said, well, son, that's nice, but I bet George's father wasn't in the cherry tree. There's kind of two waves of laughter there, right? Like the one you think it's funny and then when you kind of get it. Okay, so as we've been learning in the story, the nation of Israel hasn't literally pushed any outhouses over, but we have read time and time and time again that they are prone to doing some pretty childish things, aren't they? Even when those things negatively affect and hurt other people, even when those things hurt and negatively affect their father, their heavenly father. We saw this last week as Nathan did an amazing job of walking us through the story of a man named Saul. Here's the background of what happened. The people of Israel, the people of God, these people who have been chosen out of the world so they can go back into the world to help free and rescue and bless the world, well, this people, they're on a slow drift away from God. Instead of keeping their eyes and their attention and their focus up on the Lord, they're too busy looking around. They're too busy comparing themselves to everybody else. Now, who would do that? See, God established a system of judges, a system of men and women who would help the people live this abundant life, this full life, this promised life. But the people didn't want the judges. See, the people didn't really want God. They really didn't want to look different for him. They didn't want to trust him. They wanted to be like everybody else, and so they demanded that they get a king, a king who looked good and a king who would make them look good. And in moments like that, I can't help but think that God and Burger King sound a lot alike. Have it your way. If you want it, are you sure? Okay, have it your way. Triple decker with cheese? You want that? Jalapenos on top? Okay, have have it your way. See, God allowed them to have a king, even though he told them again and again and again that it wouldn't work out too well, but they still demanded that they get this king. And wouldn't you know it, it played out exactly like God said it would. They made this man named Saul their king. This man is described as tall, dark, and handsome. He looks good on the outside, but this man ends up being an incredibly aggressive, paranoid, hostile, cowardly, depressed man. If God ever had the right to say, I told you so, it was right here in this story. But the amazing thing about our God is he never rubs our faces in our mistakes. Instead, he enters into our mistakes and lifts our face so we can see his. Such a different philosophy. So the first go-around with the king, King Saul, didn't work out too well, but God was gonna come down and give him a second chance, a second opportunity at this king thing. We read about it in 1 Samuel 16.1. This is the top of page 145 in your storybook. It says this. 1 Samuel 16.1, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as the king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, And be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be the king. So God is done with Saul, and he has selected someone else to sit on the throne. Someone who it sounds like will make up for and be everything that Saul was not. But this time, the king won't be chosen on the basis of appearance or accomplishments or accolades. This time around, the king will be chosen based on his authenticity. Not on what everybody else can see, but on what you cannot see. Look at how the prophet described it. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And this man's name was David. David. David has the longest biography by far in the Old Testament. Abraham has some 14 chapters dedicated to his life. So does Joseph. Jacob has 11. Elijah has 10. Those, those are long stories. David has 66 chapters accredited to him and his story, and his life. And then he's mentioned 59 times in the New Testament, far more than any other Old Testament character. There's something special about this man. And I want to know what it is. I don't know about you, but I look at, at all the times that he's mentioned. I look at how he's described, and I just want to know, what made David such a stud? Like, what was it about this guy? What did God see in him? And how was he so different? In what ways was he so different from the fake, fickle, first king, King Saul? Because you see, guys, I think that, that God is doing today The very same thing he did in David's day. Look at how it's described in 2 Chronicles 16, 9. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. I love how the New King James Version puts this same verse. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. To show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. If this verse is true, which I believe that it is, just as true today as it was back in David's day, then God is searching the earth. He's looking around for people whose hearts are his, whose hearts hunger for him, whose hearts bring delight to his heart. He's looking over the whole earth, whose heart wants me. And on that day, he found David. But I wonder if today he'd find us. As he looks out over the entire earth, would he say, Wes Bowles, I've been looking for you. I found what I was looking for. Hearts that hunger for me. Hearts that bring delight to my own heart. So this morning, let's look at the life of David. And as we do, let's take an evaluation of our hearts. Now, I'm not a doctor in real life. I only play one on TV. But We're going to do a little heart assessment, a little heart test, okay? I want to see if our hearts bring delight to God's hearts. I want to see if, as he looks over the entire earth, if he would look at our hearts with great delight. Make sense? You with me? All right, let's start off by talking about what type of heart and life this is not. Being a person after God's own heart does not mean that you are perfect. Oh, it's actually pretty far You see, David's life, maybe more than any other king, in fact, is filled with imperfections. There are moments of angry tirades, sinful sexual escapades, apathy, arrogance, messed up marriages, pathetic parenting. David's life honestly makes desperate housewives look like a Disney cartoon. David would be a fool to ever proclaim, I'm perfect. No, David, how about you shrink that statement down, remove the space. Remove the apostrophe, because you're very much imperfect. But that's okay, church. That's okay. You don't have to fake that you are one over the other. God knows that you are imperfect, and actually perfection is not the prerequisite to please him or to be chosen by him. This is a tension we have to come to terms with in the story of David. He's exalted as this God-following, God-honoring man, yet he disobeys God and struggles to follow God. His heart might be clean, but at times his hands are so dirty. So we have to understand, God is not looking for perfect people. There are none. I heard a guy once say, you'll never find a perfect church filled with perfect people. And if you do, don't you dare place membership because you'd mess it all up. Perfection is not the prerequisite to please God. That's good news, isn't it? if we're honest, we're more on the top of that chart than on the bottom of it. We are imperfect as well, but that's okay, church. God knows our fallen nature, our fallen world. He knows you're going to struggle. He's not looking for perfection, but he is looking for something. Let's see if we can figure out what those somethings might be. I boiled it down to four words. I think God's heart delights when our hearts are patient, poised, passionate, and penitent. Let's go through each one of those. Nathan did a great job last week uh, walking us through the life of Saul, and it was evident in that story as well as in this story of David that when God is scanning the earth, when he's looking for a heart that brings delight to his own heart, what he's looking for are men and women who are patient, men and women who will wait on the Lord, who will trust in the Lord. Remember last week, Saul couldn't wait for these things. He took matters into his own hands. Come on, Samuel, hurry this up. He messed everything up. And then we see David being very, very Patient. Patience. Patience such an interesting thing, isn't it? Patience is the quality that you deeply admire in the driver behind you, but you can't stand in the driver in front of you. Like in one and the same moment, you love patience and you hate patience. God always loves patience. Whether it's forward, backwards, or sideways, God always loves patience. And here's why. Christian, your destiny is typically found and formed in and through long periods of obscurity. Your destiny is typically formed in and through long periods of obscurity. And God is looking for people who embrace that truth. The story of David begins as this prophet Samuel is sent to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king. Well, Samuel doesn't know which one of Jesse's sons are going to be chosen. So he naturally assumes, like all of us will, that that it's going to be the oldest son. It's the captain of the Bethlehem high school football team. That's who the next king is going to be. Well, it's not Eliab. It's not the oldest son. And it's not the next oldest son, or the next, or the next, or the next, or the next, or the next. You know who is going to be the next king? It's little twerp David, unknown, unseen, out in the field. 16-year-old little twerp David. And although David is anointed king at the age of 16, hear me now, he won't, it won't be until his 30th birthday that he actually gets to take the throne. He's anointed at age 16, but he only becomes the king at age 30. That's 14 years, 14 years of obscurity, 14 years of serving the one wearing the crown, or 14 years of running from the one wearing the crown, 14 years before he actually gets to wear the crown himself. And on several occasions, David has the opportunity to rip it into his own hands and to do it in his own way. But unlike Saul, he refuses to do it. You know why? Because his heart is patient. He wants to wait and trust on the Lord. And you see, what happened in David's life is not unique to David. Most of us will actually be developed in secret. We will be developed in obscurity. God speaks to us, he reveals things to us, he promises things to us, he might even give things to us, but then he uses long periods of time, long periods of silence, long periods of obscurity before those things will ever come to fruition. Do you know why? There's a huge difference between being anointed and being ready. Some of us are like, David, you are this big right now, and the calling God has in your life is this big. But if he took you at this size and put you in that calling, it would destroy you and you would actually destroy yourself and others. So what God needs you to do, David, is hang in there with me. For 14 years, I'm gonna stretch you, I'm gonna pull you, I'm gonna push you, so that eventually you're big enough to live out your calling. That's exactly where some of you are right now. You need a patient heart. You're so frustrated that you're right here and you wanna be right here. You feel like God has given you something that's this big. Yes, he has, you just gotta wait. You need some time, you need some training, you need some teaching need a patient heart. You see, bamboo has a patient heart. Okay, bamboo doesn't have a heart. But if if it did, it would be patient. I think God gave us bamboo to teach us a powerful lesson about the power of obscurity. Did you know bamboo germinates in the ground for seven years before it ever pops up out of the soil? Seven years. And then once it does, bamboo can grow 13 feet in a week. Seven years of lying dormant in the ground. And then as soon as its time comes and it pops out, it takes off. So maybe the David illustration didn't work for you. Maybe you want to be more like bamboo. I don't care what you compare yourself to, but the point is you're going to have to have a, a patient heart. A heart that realizes you might have to live in obscurity in order to fully live out your destiny. See, men and women of God, servant leaders in the making, they are like that bamboo. They are first unknown, unseen, unappreciated, unapplauded, and sometimes for long periods of time. But as strange as it may sound, those who can accept the silence of obscurity, those are the best qualified to handle the applause of popularity. If you demand that you're seen, if you demand that others listen to you, if you demand that you're put in positions of leadership, chances are you're not ready for those positions. A young man went to a well-respected preacher, and he expressed his interest in becoming a pastor himself. Well, the head pastor got up from his desk, went over to a storage closet, pulled out a mop, handed it to the young man. Great, he said, but before you will ever be ready to stand in front of the church, you must be willing to clean up after the church. See, well, you would think, no, it's a pastor to be. Put him on the stage. Let him spread his wings and fly a little bit. No, give him a mop and let him clean it up. Because, you see, your destiny is formed in long periods of silence, long periods of alone, long periods of obscurity. So maybe you feel like nothing is happening right now in your life. Maybe you feel like God's promises are not coming to fruition in your life. Maybe you feel like your hopes and your dreams have been put on hold. Maybe you feel like you're wasting time or that things aren't moving fast enough. Maybe it's with a job or overcoming an addiction or getting a spouse. I don't know what it is for you, but if you if you manipulate it and make it happen, it's not going to turn out too well. Wait on the Lord. Trust in his timing for you and know that you're just bamboo. You just need to be in the ground a little bit longer. And when it's your time, you will shoot up 13 feet in a week. So the first thing that David had was a patient heart. And I think that prepared him and led him to the next characteristic. The next thing I think God is looking for in us is a poised heart. Love this word. Poise is another way of saying prepared, balanced, diligent, or Ready? So after being anointed king, the next time we read about David, he's fighting the infamous giant Goliath. This is pages 148 through 150 in your story. Israel's greatest foe, the New England Patriots of the day, were the Philistines. And in this moment, the Philistines are once again waging war against God's people. And as the two armies are about to prepare for battle, one on one hillside and one on the other, the Philistines actually send one of their men into the valley below. His name is Goliath. Goliath is a beast of a man, to say the least. He is a man who stands about 10 feet tall. He's covered in about 150 pounds of armor, and he carries a spear six feet long. He's known as a warrior who's been killing people since he was a wee little Goliath. So he comes out, and Goliath issues a challenge. He says, instead of the two armies fighting, I will fight one of your men single-handedly. And however this little battle between us turns out, that's how the battle between the nations will turn out. The destiny and the fate of these two men will be the destiny and fate of the two nations. So for 40 days, the challenge is made. And for 40 days, the Israelites look and sound a lot like this guy. Check it out. Goliath definitely was scary. Well, one day David is sent by his father to go check on his seven other brothers who are all soldiers. And when he hears Goliath making this challenge, not only making the challenge, but speaking negatively about God, he he turns around and he looks at the nation of Israel. He says, are you going to let this fool get away with this? Did you just hear what this guy said about our God? And since everybody else was hiding in their tents with their tails between their legs, David takes it upon himself to fight the giant. And after one of the best biblical trash-talking scenes of all time, it's like, you're a dog, I'm going to cut your head off, I'm going to feed you to the blah, blah, blah. It's awesome. Go back and read it. You know how the story turns out. David kills the giant. But for David, slaying Goliath was no big deal. It seemed so easy, so natural for him. Do you want to know why? His heart was poised. Look at 1 Samuel 17, 34 and 35, bottom of page 148. King Saul replied to him, you're not able to go and fight the Philistine. You're only a young man. He's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Okay, how does that help? When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine Goliath, he'll be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. See, David had been fighting giants for years. He'd been faithfully fighting off predators before he ever had to fight Goliath. David had been preparing himself, whether even he knew it or not, he'd been preparing himself for this moment. This moment didn't just happen. It didn't just come out of the thin air. It was a collection of other moments that all led to that one. And here's the thing, Christian. The big battles you face, they are won or lost in the daily decisions you make. The moments of victory are always forged in the seemingly insignificant moments that lead up to the battle. See, a poised heart, it's a heart that does the right thing, the courageous thing, the faithful thing, in this little moment over here, so that when this big moment presents itself, you are ready to do the right thing, the courageous thing, and the faithful thing. A poised heart takes the unseen things just as seriously as the seen. A poised heart is a heart that devotes just as much time and attention to private matters as it does to public matters. A poised heart is a heart that is in the habit of doing everything well, even the little things, even the monotonous things, even the boring things. A poised heart is dedicated and determined even when no one's around and there's no one there to applaud you for doing it. So, the way you fill out those detailed reports at work, the way you take care of those daily assignments at school, the way you complete those mundane tasks at home, whether or not you look at that raunchy website or skip that class or how you speak to your wife when you get home or how you treat your kids on the weekend or what you do with your tax refund, all of those, those seemingly insignificant moments that happen over here, they're preparing you for a big battle over here. And if you fail over here, you will fail over here. If you cannot fight these battles with courage, with dedication, with commitment. When Goliath comes, he's going to make a mess of you. But if you've been fighting the bears, the lions over here, if you've been doing the right thing, the hard thing, the godly thing over here, Christian, you're prepared to fight a big battle. And you will win when it comes, and you won't be scared when it comes. You'll be ready. Hope you believe that to be true. A poised heart is a heart that truly delights in God's heart, man. God is also incredibly delighted with a passionate heart. David's passion for God, it's so evident in these two chapters, really throughout his entire life. We see this passion as he stands up to Goliath, says, you ugly dog, I'm going to kill you. We see this passion in all of his songs. This man lifts his heart, he lifts his hands to the Lord, but we really see this passion in a moment when the Israelites break out in the first ever flash mob. Let me show you this. A few chapters ago, God asked his people to create this box. The box was called the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a box that was going to hold some some pretty important relics of their journey, their story. It was going to hold Aaron's staff, the staff that was put in the Red Sea, and the waters went. It was going to hold the Ten Commandments, the new law, the new ways to love God and love others. But this box was also going to contain the presence of the Lord. It was also going to be a physical representation and manifestation. God is with us. He is right here. He's living in and around that box. Well, over time, the people lost their passion for God. And guess what? They actually lost the box for over 20 years. The box was in the hands of an enemy nation. And just like he couldn't allow David or Goliath to talk trash, David could not allow that box to be in the hands of an enemy nation. So he took it upon himself to remedy the problem. And although he tried once and failed, the second time David attempted to retrieve the box, he succeeded. And boy, did his passion come out. Page 157 in our story says this. When those carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, you can write right next to that, and nobody died, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, wearing his undergarments, David danced before the Lord with all of his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord, there were shouts and the sound of loud trumpets. Maybe it looked something like this. I don't know. Maybe that was a linen ephod. That's like the G version. Maybe it looked something like this. Maybe like like the X version. I don't know what it looked like, but it looked pretty crazy. It looked pretty foolish. And whatever it looked like, David's wife, Michal, was not very happy about his little strip tease. So when he got home, she said, how dare you do that? And David responded like this, I will celebrate Before the Lord, I will become even more undignified than this. I will even be humiliated in my own eyes. You see, wifey, I'm passionate for God. And that passion is going to come out. David's passion was unmatched. He wanted to see God's name exalted above. Every name, including his own. He wanted to see God's glory and goodness made known to every tribe and every tongue. He wanted the things that excited God to excite him. So he sings, he shouts, he strips, he shakes what his mama gave him. (laughs) Boy, and that's, that's a challenge. That's a challenge for us, isn't it? Those of us who like to play it close to the chest, those of us who like to keep our faith in here, in here, There's a problem with that, church. If we don't express a lot of passion for God, especially in here, I can guarantee you, you'll never express a lot of passion for God out there. And that's where you gotta show it. That's who needs to see it. So I love that me and Steve and a couple other guys, we we have our own little dance party down here, but we've gotta get excited about what the Lord is doing. We've gotta practice the passion here so that when we leave this place, it will follow us. Because people need to see that passion. Now I know you introverts, you academics are like, oh great, here we go, you passion people again. It's not about your personality, it's about your passion. We're all passionate about something and we all express it in different ways. You see, God spared the life of David on that day and he he busted out in this amazing dance. He was so excited about it. How much more excited should we be, those of us who have been saved not only today but every day for all of eternity? That's pretty exciting. That's worth a dance. I mean, let's just go ahead, come on, let's just. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Jan, you thought I was gonna do it. God loves a passionate heart. And You see, your passion for God should be evident. It should cause you to do things others are unwilling to do. It should cause you to do things that your family and friends sneer at or make fun of you for. So let's take a little heart test here. How are you doing? How passionate are you for God? Does your heart burn for him? And if so, how? How can I see it? How can others see it? Do you speak his name? Do you spontaneously bust out in praise? Do you strip tease for others? Okay, that's a weird one. Um, What do you do? How do you show your passion for the Lord? David loves God and he serves him with this intense passion. And that passion is so important to reestablish Jerusalem, to stand up to Goliath, and to have this divine dance party. But parents, you know this is true. Your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. Isn't it? My six-year-old daughter, Bailey, she has an incredible imagination. She can get lost for hours in play and pretending. She can be a princess on a pony one minute, I can turn around, she's a famous dancer on a stage, the next minute she's a teacher in a classroom, and I love this about her. I look on that with such delight until I have to get her attention, until we have to focus on the here and now, until we've gotta do her homework. Then I hate that quality about her. I'm like, serious? Focus. What pleases me most about her is also what annoys me the most. That's true for us. It's true for passionate people. It's especially true for David. You see that same passion that enabled him to break out and dance, to stand up to foes, to sing out in praise? That is the same passion that causes him to make the greatest mistake of his life. David's passion for God is evident, but so was his passion for sex. The man loved a beautiful woman. A good look into David's life shows that he had at least 11 wives, Man, hang with me here for a second. Kind of sounds interesting. That's 11 (laughs) mother-in-laws. Yeah, yeah, that changes the game. Yeah, yeah. You think that's something. You wait till we talk about Solomon next week. But David wanted more. So one day, when he should have been out on the battlefield, he gets in a lot of trouble in his bedroom. He sleeps with another man's wife. He impregnates her, and then he tries to cover up the whole mess through lies, deceit, and even murder. You see, his passion got the better of him. There's that saying, you know how it goes, "The, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. David was a big guy. A big guy in his eyes, in others' eyes, even in God's eyes, and he fell hard. And let me just take a little tangent thought here. The story of David and Bathsheba shows us, among a lot of other things, that you and I are a few bad decisions away from completely destroying our destiny. See, one bad decision on David's part to stay home when he should have gone to war led to another bad decision to stare too long at a naked woman, which led to another bad decision to sleep with her, and all of a sudden he was done. It's easy to point the finger and say how stupid you are, one bad decision after another after another. You should have known. Oh, wait, we should know too. Some of you are flirting a little too much with that coworker, and you are one or two bad decisions away from completely destroying your destiny. Some of you are getting a little too deep into drugs and alcohol, and you are a few bad decisions away from completely destroying your destiny. Some of you are thinking about giving up or giving in or giving yourself away sexually or through finances or lying about the truth. You're a few bad decisions away from completely making a mess of things. I just want to warn you, don't make that decision. Don't go down that road. I want you to have a passion that is pure, that's focused on God, that's contagious and inspirational, a passion that God is looking for, but not a passion that Satan is using to twist and distort and hurt others. You with me? I want the other passion. That kind of leads us to the last part of David's heart. We'll, we'll call it good after this. The final quality of a God-seeking heart, I think, is a penitent heart. Penitence is a fancy P word for repentant and remorseful which are just fancy R words for being sorry. As we mentioned before, God's not looking for perfect people. What he's looking for is people who are very honest about their imperfections, who don't fake it, who don't hide it, who don't try to cover it up. And maybe that's why David is exalted. Even though he messes up so royally, you'll read in the, in the story of Kings here in a couple of chapters, it says, David was a man after God's own heart. He always did what was right in the Lord's eyes. And it's like parentheses, except for that whole Bathsheba thing. Oh, man. But you know what about that whole Bathsheba thing? He was honest about it. Took a little while. Took a good friend to, to get him to that place. But over time, David was completely forthright. And he fell on his knees. He actually fell on his face before God. He confessed it to others, and he lifted up his sin to the Lord. Listen to these words. Psalm 51, pages 163 and 164, penned right after the Bathsheba incident, says this. Have mercy on me, O oh God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my many transgressions the laziness transgression, the lust transgression. The sleeping with her transgression, the killing her husband, yeah, those. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Cleanse me. Wash me. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. See, David caused and created a lot of problems. He compromised and caved in in a lot of situations, but in every situation, he always confessed. He was always honest. He was always open about it. He was honest with others. He was honest with himself. And he was honest with God. Does that describe you? Take a test of your heart. How aware of you are you of your imperfections? How honest with yourself and others are you about the ways that you are settling or being selfish or just flat out sinning? When was the last time you confessed a sin by name specifically to a Christian brother or sister? When was the last time you approached God on your knees or on your face? Do you have a broken heart, a contrite heart, a penitent heart that hungers for righteousness? Does sin and imperfection burden you or do you treat it flippantly? I know I've been guilty of that. I'll I'll be praying with the Lord at the very end. I'll be like, oh yeah, and Lord, forgive me for all my imperfections. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe I need to spend some more time on that last line. Telling him what really is going on. Calling it out by name. Listing out my transgressions. Having a penitent heart. So what is the Lord looking for as he scans the earth? Who will bring delight to his heart? I think it's someone with a heart like this. A patient heart. A poised heart, a passionate heart, and a penitent heart. You just gotta love the P words, don't you? So as was the case for the little boy in West Texas, what is on the inside is always more important than what you see on the outside. And my hope and prayer for you this week, my hope and prayer for this church is that when God looks at us, we will will have hearts that bring delight to his heart. Amen? Let me pray that over you gonna sing a pretty powerful song talking about you're not alone in this battle. You're not alone in this fight. You're not alone in trying to develop this heart and become this type of person. And after that, I've got one final announcement. We'll call, it, we'll call it good. God, thank you for who you are. We're so thankful that you haven't given up on us, God. You could have thrown the towel in long ago and just just ended the story, but you didn't. We're so grateful that you continually write this story and that you use us as characters in it. We're thankful, God, that you are a God that's not distant or aloof. You're not a God who's far off, but you are looking, even now, scanning the earth, your eyes going to and fro, searching for someone whose heart is truly after yours. Searching for someone whose heart burns for you, someone whose heart hungers for you, God. We pray that we will be those people. Pray that our heart will be that heart, that it will be a patient heart, a poised heart, a passionate heart, and a penitent heart. And God, as we develop that heart within us, or maybe send the Spirit, Lord, to help us develop that heart, we pray you will look at us and be pleased. And we pray that you will come through on your promise, that you will strengthen us and show your power through us as a result. Please make it so. Make our heart to be like that of David. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.